Our speaker this morning is Paul McBride, a member of New Hope Community Church. So I'm going to share, I'm going to get into the message here a little bit and talk about Washington and his faith. And it starts this way. If you um, were to pick up any book from the 18th century, you know, Washington century, the late 1700s, and read about Washington or any periodical or newspaper, there is no question Washington was a Christian. If you picked up any magazine, periodical, or book, or tome, the autobiography or the biography of George Washington, everybody was absolutely certain he was a Christian. Up until 1964, in the 20th century, if you picked up any periodical or book or history of George Washington, he was known as a devout Christian. In 1964, something changed, and it was simply this. One professor, I'll add the word liberal, he was a liberal professor at a school in the South, wrote a book on Washington, and wrote one sentence, and let me see if I can pull it out in my notes here, It was simply one sentence, and he said, his conclusion can be summarized in a single sentence. To the unbiased observer, George Washington appears as a deist, not a devout Christian. That was it. That's all he wrote. No backup to it whatsoever. So I've I've known of that for many years, and I have a book It's not a fun read, but it's called George Washington's Sacred Fire, and it was written over 20 years by Dr. Peter Lilbach, who is the president emeritus of um, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. And he basically went about disproving Professor Bowler's one sentence with Washington's own letters and orders and what have you from the conflict of the revolution onto his presidency and then after. So the first thing I want to share is uh, deism. You know, what is deism and what's so bad about it? And the simplest expression for deism is this. Uh, Deists do, in fact, believe in a supreme being. They don't put masculine or feminine to that. They're simply a supreme being um, who has, in fact, created. It's sort of like intelligent design. It didn't just happen with a big bang. There is a supreme creator behind all of this, but... The big difference is the deist looks at creation and they look at that supreme being as impersonal and essentially the phrase you hear a lot is a watchmaker or a clockmaker God. So in other words, everything's been created and then it's just been left to its own devices. There's no personal involvement. Um, A couple of months ago, Chuck made a comment about Thomas Jefferson and the Jefferson Bible. And I remember after church, Beth and I went to breakfast with uh, Ken and Heather Law. I don't think they're here today. But Ken was talking about that because he was familiar. Is anybody familiar with the Jefferson Bible and what's different about the Jefferson Bible? The Jefferson Bible essentially is this. Jefferson was a deist. And he took four different Bibles. He took English, Greek, Latin, and French. They were the classical languages of his day. And he laid them side by side. And then he got out a pair of scissors, if you will, And he removed all references to Jesus' uh, divinity and Jesus' miracles. So he didn't discount that Jesus was a great teacher, but he essentially removed the divinity and the miracles. 
As Chuck would say, that's a Swiss cheese Bible. It doesn't make sense. You can't get to pick and choose what the creator has said. But somehow that thought about Jefferson, who was an unabashed deist, you know, translated into George Washington, and Washington wasn't around to defend himself. So Dr. Lilbach set out to do just that. So what he had is a number of papers. Beth and I were at uh, Mount Vernon a few years ago, and uh, we found that Martha Washington, when, when Washington was on his deathbed, for the next three days, she burned all of their personal correspondence. And it was voluminous. There was a lot of letter writing done between Washington and Martha. And so that's been lost to history, but she felt this country that he had helped found had taken already too much. And she didn't want us to know the personal writings. Fortunately, we have volumes upon volumes of Washington's official correspondence, as well as personal letters to friends who had kept those letters for obvious reasons. So essentially, uh, as you take a look at that, you can pull out an awful lot of facts that disprove Dr. Bowler's claim that he's a deist. And uh, first off, you look at this. Um, Washington's own niece, Nellie Custis, uh, wrote that uh, Washington was known, the general was known, to retire to his chamber every evening with his Bible. She said, we never heard what went on. We never knew if he was kneeling or what have you. But roughly one hour later, he would come from his chamber, he would wash, and then he would retire for the evening. And she said, you know, there was no question in her mind you know, that her uncle was going in there with his Bible for one full hour of prayer. Um, find my notes here. Now, there's been some dispute about how religious freedom, how religious America was during the American Revolution. And it starts out with this fact that there was a shortage of churches and clergy, especially along the paths of the westward frontier, which was Pittsburgh, if you will, in Pennsylvania. Uh, but we also remember that the War of Independence followed the first Great Awakening. Uh, many of you here probably have heard of George Whitfield who you know, was an English preacher who went up and down the East Coast to all of the colonies, truly preaching the true gospel of Jesus. He was a friend of Ben Franklin's. Uh, Franklin's faith is always in dispute whether he was a deist or a Christian. But Franklin, nevertheless, was a friend of Whitfield's and essentially one of the very first structures that became part of the University of Pennsylvania was an auditorium that Franklin funded for George Whitfield's crusades, if you will. And it's worth noting that at the first meeting of the Continental Congress in September of 1774, the revolution has not begun yet, but at that first meeting, one of the very first motions from the floor was for a prayer to seek guidance from God. Now, there was a lot of resistance, but this is interesting to note. The resistance was not over whether or not we should pray, all of the gentlemen present. The resistance was what should we pray for and in what tongue? because most of those founders spoke Latin, they spoke French and classical Greek. So the factoid is, you know, a lot of these folks were in fact Christians of note, they were knowledgeable. Several of the founders were in fact ordained pastors. Um, at the second meeting, they proposed that George Washington be appointed commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. And that proposal came forth from John Adams, and John Adams, as many may know, was Washington's first vice president. Um, Adams got a lot of short shrift up until James McCullough wrote that book, Adams, and HBO made a great uh, nine-part series, I believe. But Adams was uh, the quintessential 
man behind the man, if you will. And he had proposed that Washington, being probably the most famous person in the colonies and being a bit of a military hero from his time in the French and Indian War, would be the ideal candidate to head up the Continental Army. Interestingly, a lot of folks don't know, John Hancock thought that Adams was going to suggest him and for a couple of years didn't speak to Adams because he was upset that he hadn't been chosen. Um, But here's what Washington did. These are his exact words. I shall rely, therefore, confidently on that providence which has heretofore preserved and been bountiful to me, not doubting but that I, will, I shall return safe to you in the fall. Washington referred many times, and this was the language of the time, he wouldn't use the name God, much like the Jews. Even Jews today, devout Jews, will not say Yahweh. I have some Jewish friends, and every once in a while in correspondence, they're referring to God or Yahweh, and you'll simply get a Y and the H or the G and the D. They won't fill out the word. They're not worthy. And that was sort of the custom of Christians you know, in the 18th century to not use the exact expression God. And so Washington, in many of his writings, referred to God by a common term at that time, providence. Now, one event that George Washington believed showed God's providence was the Battle of Long Island in 1776. So I'll I'll do this fairly quickly. The Revolution was eight years. It commenced in April of 1775 with the shot heard round the world at Lexington and Concord. To this day, we do not know who fired the first shot, whether it was the British or the colonists, but several patriots were killed, um, and the the war was on. And Washington was not there yet. So Washington made his way from Virginia to Boston, And this is where the miracles started to occur. Uh, The first miracle was this. When Washington arrived at Harvard, it wasn't the university it is today, but it was a college, um, he came upon some belligerents. They weren't real happy with this southerner whom they didn't know, who apparently spoke with a funny southern accent compared to their Boston accents. And they weren't really interested in serving him as commander-in-chief. They wanted a gentleman by the name of Israel Putnam, who was also also a hero of the French and Indian War, and he was one of theirs. He was from Connecticut, and he spoke with the same accent, if you will. Washington wasn't quite sure how to take control of the situation, and he believed God gave him (laughs) this miracle. Two gentlemen from uh, from New England, from different colonies, got into a fistfight in Harvard Yard. They were probably between five foot four and five foot five each. Most folks were smaller in that day and age. Washington himself was six foot two. Washington came upon the fight, dismounted from his horse, and with one hand picked up one of the belligerents, and in the other picked up the other belligerent, knocked their heads together, threw them to the ground, and said, this will not stand. He had no more trouble after that. (laughs) Now imagine, this is a story that They used to teach kids, and no one knows about this. So that's Harvard Yard. That's the very beginning, one of the first miracles, as we see it. Um, The next miracle would be uh, the miracle of the fog, and that's this Long Island battle. So what happens is Washington takes control of the army in Boston. He takes control with beating up a couple of belligerents, if you will. It's basically a stalemate for several months. He arrives in May of 1776. There's a stalemate until March of 1776. I'm sorry, March of 1776. He arrives in May of 75. Nothing much really happens. 
The British are there in Boston. Washington is just outside of Boston. And then in March of 1776, he decides to do something. And on the night before March 17th, the colonists take cannons that they have seized from Saratoga and place them in Dorchester Heights. Through the night, they basically build a fort under cover of a storm. The storm was brought about by Providence, according to Washington. The next morning, March 17th, the British realize that there are American guns and it's indefensible to stay in Boston and they make way to leave Boston. It takes a few weeks, but they leave Boston and they disappear. They go to Nova Scotia, we find out later. Washington has basically saved Boston. He then makes his way to New York City because they're feeling that's where the British are going to come back and they want to take New York. Washington is there in New York in July and on July 8th, the first copies of the Declaration of Independence make their way to New York and they are read to the troops. Days later, the largest invasion force to date, 61 ships from Britain, make their way into New York Harbor. A lot of folks were scared. They saw this unbelievable cloud, if you will, all of these ships coming in. It was essentially indefensible with the the army that Washington had And essentially, they lost one battle after another battle after another, being chased from the battery. It's still referred to as the battery. That's where Henry Knox had the original artillery to fight off the British. They're chased from Brooklyn Heights. They're chased up the island of Manhattan. And then they leave where the current George Washington Bridge is. That's approximately where GW and the troops crossed into New Jersey from New York. Now, interestingly, this is the miracle of the fog. They are completely surrounded by the British, roughly 5,000 American troops. Washington, under cover of darkness, starts the evacuation across the river on small rafts, boats, anything they can find. Daylight is coming. The British are getting ready to prepare to assault. This is, in all the history books, a fog rolls in around 6 a.m. The sun is up. The troops are getting across. The British are starting to advance. A fog rolls in and obscures the Americans. The British can't even fire upon them. And the very last person on the very last boat was George Washington himself. So he makes it. This is in September. He makes it across the Hudson into New Jersey. The British follow in a few days, and there are just constant delaying actions through the fall till we get to Christmas time right here. They make it across the Delaware River, and I just shared this with a couple of the folks earlier at church. Many folks may know this, but Washington's Crossing was not always known as Washington's Crossing. Who knows the right name, the original name? McConkie's Ferry. It was where the McConkie family ran a ferry. There was no bridge. They simply ran a ferry. Um, Washington came across McConkie's Ferry a couple of times and had the Army camp out there. What many folks don't know is that he constantly was returning to New Jersey because what they did, the troops were collecting every type of watercraft from Bordentown in the south up to Frenchtown in the north so that the British wouldn't have any access across the river. How many folks here have been to the New Hope Library? Right across the street. How many folks have ever noticed that really nice colonial building right next door? Does anybody know what that building's called? It's called the Old Fort, and there's a plaque there. Beth and I were just there yesterday, as a matter of fact. I mean, you can see that building from here. 
What most, many folks probably no one in this auditorium knows is that just a few days before Christmas, Washington was in New Jersey again inspecting up and down the Jersey coast to ensure that all the boats had been brought over. He then came over across Curiel's Ferry right here and stopped at the old fort, that house, right across the street from this church, from this high school. And he met with General Lord Sterling, who was a brigadier general, a Scotsman. He was an actual lord. He was a member of the House of Lords, but he was on the Patriot side. But Washington spent time with him there, and then he and the army went right down the street, right in front of this school. They went down to where the old the Wawa is now, and right across the street is the old General Green Inn. So Wawa's on one side, and then Buckingham Elementary is caddy corner from that building. He met with General Nathaniel Green there, and then they made their way down what is now 413, Old Durham Road, to McConkie's Ferry, and started laying out the battle plans. It's just, all of this stuff is unbelievable to me that it happened right here in our backyard, literally. Um, so here we go. There's the miracle of the fog that gets them here. There's the miracle that he can keep this army together. Now, many folks may not know, he only had about 2,000 men here. There were another 1,000 in Bristol, and there were another 1,000 a little bit further down at Dunks Ferry in Philadelphia. All of these men had enlistments that were ending on January 31st, on December 31st, New Year's Eve. Washington asked if they would stay for one more week. Because here's the thing, if we lose, if this doesn't happen, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, John Hancock, if we had lost, would most probably have been hanged as traitors. A lot of folks, they don't talk about that in history anymore, but that's the fact. Their lives were literally on the line, and Washington wrote a letter just a day before the battle to his brother and said, he actually used our vernacular, he said, I think the game is pretty much up. <laughs> if we don't do something big here, we're done. So here's where it gets very interesting. The Christmas crossing, they're preparing for it. The troops have no idea where they're going to be going. They're assembled at McConkie's Ferry. Uh, they decide they're going to cross with about 2,000 men. It was supposed to be done in about two to three hours. It took nine. In the interim, Colonel Rawl, who was the head of the Hessians in Trenton, got word that Washington was coming. Inexplicably, a note was given to him, said the Continentals are forming, be prepared for an attack tomorrow morning. Inexplicably, Colonel Rawl took that message, folded it, and put it in his pocket. A hand of providence, if you will. Um, Washington and the men, it takes nine hours to cross. They're the only contingent that crosses. The folks in Bristol and the folks further down in Dunks Ferry are not able to cross. The river is just too ice-choked. It was probably just as ice-choked here but Washington's leadership, Washington's determination made the crossing happen. They cross over at McConkie's Ferry. They're about nine miles north of Trenton. They make their way down River Road. And I go to the Trenton train station all the time. As you're getting down to Trenton, West Trenton, there's a cut that's called Sullivan's Way. It's the main road, Sullivan's Way. Sullivan's Way is where General John Sullivan split. Washington went down River Road. He sent Sullivan to the north so that they formed a pincer movement around the Hessians in Trenton. Um, the miracles here are that, one, the crossing took place. They got across. Two men were lost, and they were lost to frostbite. They literally froze to death. Nobody was lost to combat. This is where it gets very interesting. They, they've taken, they, they take the Hessians. The Hessians are shocked. Colonel Rawl is killed. 
and that was convenient to the British because they blamed everything on him and he couldn't defend himself. Um, now here's where it gets interesting where a lot of folks don't know. So Washington now has an army of roughly 2,000 men. That has just swelled to approximately 3,000 because he's got about 890, 900 or so Hessian prisoners. They march across the river. They come back across the river in the same boats they'd crossed the night before. They make their way to Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin comes up with a pretty good idea of what to do with the Hessian prisoners. There are already a contingent of Moravians, German-speaking people, who live in the Lancaster area of Pennsylvania. Let's march those troops out there, and let's see if they might want to settle here. And that is essentially what happened. My son Paul went to Millersville University, and one of his professors who teaches American history is a direct descendant of one of the Hessians. And there are many of those direct descendants of the Hessians right in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Dutch, if you will. Um, so that happens within days. What most folks don't know is that Washington then crosses back into New Jersey. So he's had the battle. He's defeated the Hessians. He's crossed back into Philadelphia, gotten the troops there. They're back in, New Jer in Jersey, in Trenton, and General Cornwallis, Charles Cornwallis, has made his way back down through New Jersey. He was on his way home to visit his ailing wife, and he got orders. The Continentals have struck, and they have defeated the Hessians. You need to get back into the fight. So Cornwallis is making his way through New Jersey to Trenton. Washington has set up a defensive position on the Assunpink Creek. And this is what's known as the Second Battle of Trenton. Where the battle, battle lines were drawn, if anybody's ever taken the Trenton train from the Trenton Transit Center, that is approximately right where Washington was. There's that little creek right there. Washington made his defense there. The British are coming. Here's another miracle. They are making their way through New Jersey. It has thawed since the, mass, the massive Christmas storm that Washington fought through. The weather has turned and it has gotten warmer. That's not a good thing for the British because the roads have become completely muddy and clogged. In addition to this, Washington has given orders to Colonel Jonathan Hand. And they say this, it was, the, it was Colonel Hand and the hand of Providence that slowed the British as they're making their way. So they are making their way south to attack Washington at Trenton. They are slowed up by the bad weather, the hand of Providence, the mud. They are slowed up by Colonel Hand, and they are essentially guerrillas. They are going in, they are sniping at the British, and then running a little bit further away, sniping at the British, going a little bit further away. This delays the British. So instead of arriving at Trenton at noon, which is when Cornwallis thought he'd be able to bag the fox, Washington, for good, they don't get there until about 4.30 in the afternoon. They get there, they quickly assault Washington and his troops. This is what really gets me from a military perspective. There was a small bridge there. You could only fit four men across. Nobody knows why he did this and how he did this, but Washington, on his horse, was right in the middle of this bridge, and he never moved. He had troops on either side of him. The British came three times they attacked. Volley upon volley was fired. Troops were killed. Washington was not, and they said he felt he had to stay there, and he said, if I die, I die. Nightfall is coming. Cornwallis says, we'll bag the fox in the morning. And then what happens is the weather turns again. It freezes during the night. 
Washington takes 100 men. They stay at the defensive line. They keep campfires going. They make a lot of noise, sort of like the Israelites 2,000 years ago making noise as they go around Jericho. They make a lot of noise to make it sound like there's a lot more men here than there are. The rest of the army does an end run around the British and start making their way to Princeton on pristine roads that have frozen over. They even they wrap the cannon, the wheels of the cannons, in old rags to keep it quiet. They make their way up to Princeton. Uh, Beth and I just stopped at the battlefield the other day. Princeton has a lot of significance to me because it's the first time where United States Marines fought on land. Uh, there was a contingent of Marines that made their way from Philadelphia, joined up with Washington at Assenpink, and made their way over to Princeton. This is where, again, it gets interesting. Washington is making his way to Princeton. Cornwallis and his troops are ready to assault. Washington's not there. Cornwallis is in such a fluster, he does nothing for several hours. Washington has made his way. Jim, I'm looking at you because you used to work out that way. He made his way through Skillman and up that way to Princeton. And as they get to Princeton, they come upon some British soldiers coming south. And I just shared this with Beth the other day. We all know it as Mercer County. It's named for General Hugh Mercer, who was Washington's friend and physician, um, who fell at the Battle of Princeton. And sadly, the British thought they had bagged Washington, because Mercer sort of resembled him, and he was dressed in a resplendent uniform. And they, they, they shot him off his horse, and then they bayoneted him, but he didn't die. And Beth and I were just there the other day at the house where he died, the Clark House, which is right on the battlefield. But Washington is making his way. Mercer's troops are fighting the British. They are starting to become overwhelmed. Here's another miracle. And Beth was with me the other day. I don't know if I have that slide, but there's a slide where I show. Beth took a picture of me. That's the Battle of Trenton, of course. If you can move, Heather, there's a picture of me standing at a column. Ah, okay. There's a picture. I had Beth take the picture from approximately 40 yards away and I'm standing at the battlefield monument. There are British and American soldiers buried right there. Um, most folks just drive right by. But when Mercer falls, his troops start to buckle. This is when Washington arrives. And Washington had what was called a lifeguard. He had between 50 and 100 men who served with him throughout the Revolution. They were wealthy gentlemen. They had the same uniform as him. And they were essentially his bodyguards. He and these lifeguard show up at the battle just as the Americans are starting to buckle. He rides into the charge and comes within. I, I wish we had that picture because 40 yards is probably, you know, Jim and I are probably 40 yards apart, maybe a little less. But Washington is that close to the British troops. Two members of his lifeguard literally covered their eyes as the volleys went off. There was so much smoke, they were certain that the commander must have been killed. Washington was unscathed. And he turned the battle, we win Princeton. What's interesting is, all this time, Franklin is now in France, and he's negotiating to get the French into the battle, to get them into the war. The French are careful, they're not so sure they want to do this, because can these colonists do their own thing? And it had been one loss after another. Trenton, the second battle of Trenton, and then Princeton happened right you know, at the end of the year, 76, and the very beginning of 77. And in two weeks' time, a packet boat, a small packet boat from Philadelphia, arrived in Paris. They arrived in France. They made their way to Paris to Dr. Franklin, who then took it to King Louis' court, and the French were in the fight. So that's sort of a really quick and dirty on, you know, 
the Battle of Trenton, the Second Battle of Trenton, and Princeton. But essentially, there are a number of miracles right there. There's one other, and I've done this with the kids. I did it last week with the kids. and I, I used myself as Goliath, and I used Andrew Wilson as David. And I told them, I said, and I've done this before when I've done the David and Goliath story. If you were to look, and I asked all the kids, so I said, if Andrew Wilson standing over there and Mr. McBride were to get into a fist fight, who do you guys think is going to win? And of course, you're going to win. I said, that stands to reason that I would win. And I, I tried to make this so the clear, kid, clear so the kids would understand. That is essentially what took place with our American Revolution. We were as small as Andrew Wilson, and the British were as big as I am you know, in, in comparison, and yet we won. Somehow we won. And, and I subscribe, and I've done a lot of study on this, but in many ways, if you look at, from the British side at the American Revolution, the American Revolution was Britain's Vietnam. In the latter years, some of the letters that mothers of British soldiers wrote their members of parliament could have been written by mothers of young kids in Vietnam in the 1960s. Essentially, why is my son so far from home fighting for something I don't believe in? Bring our boys home. And essentially, that's what happened. Washington knew that he could not fight the British in the traditional European way, which was somewhat crazy. We've seen this in many movies, but they would line up and simply march into gunfire. And so essentially they adopted. They did do that. We had several battles where that did occur, but most of the time we lost those battles. But essentially we adopted a war of attrition. We simply wore them out. And ultimately what happened is that the war was won not in New York City, not in the Northeast. It was won in Yorktown, Virginia. And how that came about is that General Nathaniel Green, the gentleman with whom that hotel used to be named for, um, General Nathaniel Green was made general of the Southern Army. Washington trusted him above all his other generals. And essentially, for several months in 1781, he just had Cornwallis chasing him from Wilmington, North Carolina, on the coast, all the way through South Carolina and North Carolina. And it got so bad that Cornwallis and his troops were so close that they dumped a lot of their gear because they just wanted to finish Nat Green and his troops off once and for all. And they were unable to do that. And essentially, I believe it was nine battles were fought between General Cornwallis and General Green. General Green and the Americans pretty much lost every single one of those battles. But essentially what they did is they won the war because by the time they made it to Yorktown, the British troops were exhausted, their supplies had been cut off, and this is where the French and Washington get into the game, and they march from Philadelphia. We were there last summer. Uh, they made their way down the old Route 13, the King's Highway, and made their way down to Yorktown, surrounded them. As the, Ameri- as the British reinforcements were coming in, the French were already there. The British turned and went back to New York. Cornwallis surrendered. And it's of note, I, I had a picture of this one plaque, though. It's in, um, at Washington's Crossing, there's a boulder with a plaque, and it's the toast that General Charles Cornwallis gave to George Washington at Yorktown in 1781. And essentially he said this. He said, when the annals of history are written of your greatness, it will be on the shores of the Delaware in 1776 and not here in Yorktown that you attained such greatness. Pretty, pretty heady stuff, you know, from Cornwallis, who was a very seasoned veteran, to this upstart 
Many, many British thought of him as a traitor, George Washington. So I'll, I'll share this. Um, Yorktown was 81. The war itself didn't end. The treaty wasn't signed for two more years. And during this time, Washington and the Army stayed together and essentially kept the peace. There was still a lot of unrest because there were still a number of Americans who weren't sure what we have won. And this is where, I always look at this way, Washington is my hero from a military perspective. He's also my hero from a political perspective because I say to the, he's probably the greatest president of all time because he's the only president who didn't want to be president. <laughs> he didn't spend a penny to run for election. He did not want to be reelected. He was reelected unanimously. But here's the real key is that he voluntarily resigned after eight years, two terms, if you will. And when that happened, world leaders reacted. And most notably, George III, in his diary, the day that he got word that General George Washington, who was his nemesis for so many years, had resigned the presidency of the colonies. And George III wrote in his diary, if true, then George Washington is among one of the greatest men of all time. Because most leaders of that ilk would never voluntarily give up the power. And Washington did. He wanted to be the true, they, they, they call it, you know, the, the officers of the revolution formed the Society of the Cincinnatus, the old Roman gladiator. The movie Gladiator was roughly based on Cincinnatus, who was a Roman general who voluntarily resigned rather than become emperor and went back to his farm. But I subscribe that Washington was of a similar character and a similar ilk. So um, I'll just end with this. When we looked at this, um, this verse from early on, and I know it's loosely based on this, but essentially what Solomon was writing here was that you know, God had said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive Solomon, God answered with four conditions for forgiveness. I'm reading from my NIV study Bible. The first was this, humble yourself by admitting your sins. Pray to God, asking for that forgiveness. Seek God continually. Turn from the sinful behavior. True, repent true repentance is more than just talk. It is changed behavior. Whether we sin individually we're as a group, we're as a nation, following these steps will lead to forgiveness. God will answer our earnest prayer. So it is my prayer. You know, we're in this period of the election season, Veterans Day, the Marine Corps birthday. But it is my prayer that America will recognize its sin. As Michael Card wrote so well, if my people would recognize their sin and turn to God, then God will heal our land. So if we could pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for people like George Washington, Lord. You know, as I've read and done the studies, you know, Washington was a Christian, not a deist. But he was a man, Lord, like us, who had a purpose. And he himself believed that any greatness he had came from you. And any protection that he had came from your beneficent hand, as he wrote. We pray, Lord, that our nation would return to some of those values, that we would raise up men and women like Washington, 
people who care about this nation, who care about their neighbors, and care about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and most importantly, who would defend our right to worship you and to worship you in peace. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for this great nation. Thank you for our veterans. In Jesus' name, amen.